KPFA Radio presents Africa Today, which seeks to update listeners on contemporary developments in Africa, the Caribbean, South America, and the United States. The program utilizes an interview and discussion format to explore political, social, economic, and cultural themes relative to the African experience. Host Walter Turner is a professor of history and chairperson of the Social Sciences Department at the College of Marin in Kentfield, California, instructing courses in United States history, African history, and African American history. Walter is also president of the Board of Directors of Global Exchange and is an African news analyst for KPFA. His specialty is contemporary African development, and he covers the African diaspora and the global African experience. Please enjoy this episode of Africa Today, which previously aired live on KPFA Radio. We love Africa, we love Africa, we love. We say we love Africa, we love Africa, we love. African, proud to be African, and we are black men, proud to be black men. When I wake up in the morning... Emory Douglas was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, since the early 1950s, he has lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, he attended City College of San Francisco, where he majored in commercial art. Uh, Emory Douglas is a prolific, world-renowned graphic artist whose bold, iconic designs shout out the needs and lived experience of oppressed people around the world. He is a former veteran revolutionary artist and minister of culture for the Black Panther Party. His fearless designs were prominent, regular features on the cover, back page, and inside pages of the Black Panther newspaper, immediately communicating the party platform and experiences of the black community. He continues to create political art to serve to transform the material conditions of oppressed people towards a future of liberation. He is the author. His book is out, Black Panther, the Revolutionary Art of Emory Douglas, which is out on Rizzoli Press. He is also has an article included and is interviewed, I believe, in the text uh, Zapanteria Negra, an artistic encounter between the Black Panthers and the Zapatistas, and that's on Common Notions uh, Press, and both of those are accessible and uh, worth having in your library. Um, Professor Douglas, thanks for joining Africa Today. How are you? I'm doing fine, Brother Walter. I'm glad you invited me. Good, good, good. How, how's, how's your family? How's your, how's your family doing? How are you doing? You holding up? How's everything going? Oh, everything's going fine. Everybody's doing well. Okay, yeah. fantastic. You were born in uh, Michigan, right? Uh, yeah, I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh-huh, in 1943. And uh, I was there, I think I stayed there, lived there for about seven years. My mom was a single parent, basically, and uh, came to San Francisco in 1950-51 because I had asthma real bad as a kid. And the doctor thought the weather would be better here. My doc, my mom had a sister who lived in the uh, Hunters out there in the Double Rock Project. Okay. Uh, and uh, so we came here, but I outgrew it over a period of time. Plus, she had an extended family sister who also lived in the Fillmore on the Visitorial at that time as well. You know, so. Okay, so you're in both the Western Edition and in Double Rock. What was mom's name? What's mom's first name? 
My mom's name was Lorraine. Lorraine, uh, L, she, she, she spelled, it was spelled her, uh, on, uh, the, it was spelled Lorene, L-U-R-E-N-E. Okay. But, uh, she, but over the years, she started, it was spelled L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E. She shifted it to that, yeah. Okay. So you, mm-hmm. when you were when you were when your family was out in Double Rock, which is out there by Hunters Point, uh, the, the the shipyards and those workers who had come out there that was still a big presence. Yes, uh, you could say that. Yeah, it was the projects. They had the uh, military barracks out there then. Okay, but, but the uh, the two storage same ones they had were prominent all over during that time, and and uh, up all over in that area. And uh, you had the one-story ones where they, where they were doing all the industrial area down there, uh, where they built up the industrial area now off of 3rd, where they run in the train through the streets in that area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when did this? It was in the area where the 49ers used to play football when they had the first football stadium. Oh, so it's, it's actually out there close to the freeway, right? Yeah, close to the freeway, close right on the water. They called it Devil Rock because it was two rocks out there, and we used to try to swim out to the rocks on our home rafts, all that kind of stuff. And there used to be a boathouse down in that area where that's where the, uh, the community's bluff folks who you go and party at on the weekends and all that kind of stuff. Oh, you got a good memory. You remember way back then, huh? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. You got that memory. When did this... When did the art energy hit you? I mean, I know you studied commercial art at City College, but was there some art creative uh, uh, energy in Emory Douglas before that? Uh, well, you know, just like I, you could say like all kids and stuff, nothing, and, uh, you know, just drawing, uh, copying stuff you've seen on and using little materials that you had, maybe a paper bag, or, or if you had a sheet of school paper, you you know you and you trying to make landscape drawings, all those kinds of things, or whatever it was. But it had nothing to do with any structured thing dealing with the social issues as a youngster growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did how did that, that piece? Yeah, these, these newer generations is, is you know may respond in that way. Well, you know, myself, you know. It didn't respond in that way. But there was one thing that did always intrigue me as a youngster. When I used to, I used to, my auntie stayed in Devil Rock. Mm-hmm. And we, my mom, my mom was, when we first came, was looking for a place. But at the same time, we, she, we found a place where the black woman owned the house in this alley called Linden. And we were able to rent from her. But I used to stay with my auntie quite a bit and during that time. And she stayed in, she's the one in Double Rock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So were, were you going between Double Rock and Fillmore? Was that your kind of family oh, circle? I used to catch the 22 bus. Okay, 22 Fillmore. Bus. Yeah, they'd get out right up there around 3rd and 22nd. And it used to be, a, a, um, a, I think, Pacific Island uh, bar right on the corner. And you see, and you stand right in front of the fence to catch the bus, and you would see them doing, roasting them big pigs in the, in, in, in the ground and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when did that when did that kind of art energy come together? Was that when you began? And so when did you when you you went to City College? Is that correct? Yeah, but you say you know life's journey kind of plays into it, but it comes to you uh, 
in a real way when you begin to get involved and hear more and, you know, and and what have you, and the rebellions, the riots taking place, you you, you focus on that because that was all televised a lot during that time. You know, you, then you, you know, you, you had you, seen on TV, see uh, when Fannie Lou Hamer and the black delegation uh, went to, and I think it was the 1964 mm-hmm. uh, convention when they uh, watched that on TV, and they refused to be seated because they're black uh, rep- delegate Mississippi. You know, then prior to that, growing up, you know, you see in the 60s when Nat King Cole uh, only had a 15-minute TV show, you know. Mm-hmm. And you hear your aunties and aunties, people, relatives, and extended uh, family talking about how disgraceful that was you know, in that sense. You know, growing up watching on the on the black and white TV, which it was basically my auntie had the TV at the house where I used to come and stay at a lot. And you see um, the baseball games all weekend You in Havana. You would see the, that's when the gangsters was running it. And didn't know that then, but that's what it was, come to find out. When they, and you see the uh, performances and all that, like the uh, same thing you would see now you in, in, in Vegas, when you go to Vegas or what have you. You would see that all night long, but then on Saturday mornings during the day, you would see black baseball players. And you see some of the bl- black Roberto Clemente and all of them. Some of them we used to go over to Cuba to play with the other uh, 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 players from that from the from over in uh, that in Mexico and South America and what have you when they would have a game. So you see that all day. And I just remembered. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I remember one day in 1959, I think around 59, around that era time, that it just cut off. You had, I think it was Edward R. Merle, if I can remember that guy. I think he was one of the well-known. They was talking about something, but but I didn't know. That was also part of the process of the of the uh, Cuban Revolution during that time, you see. And so you come back to those things after you realize, oh, that's what that was, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you had talked. And you just grow up in school, how you treat it in school. You know, you always, you can see, you can sense that, uh, you had, you had deep knowing how you would treat a little black kid in school, particularly when the teachers were all white during that time as a kid growing up. And that, you know. But but everyone doesn't pick up on that, Emory. What, what was it about? Was it about mom? Was it about double rock? Was it about what was it about it? That, because at some point you and, and when do you begin to go to the black house? When do you begin to make oh, connections well, with the African-American community? Yeah, that becomes when uh, around I, I, when I got in the Black Arts Movement, I was in I was in city. You see, I went to City College about 1963, dropped out 64, 65, around that time. And being in the Black Arts Movement, I was we beginning to become aware of things because I was involved, connected with a lot of these with people who were involved in that. That's when I went to City College in San Francisco. You had this brother named Roland Young who used to be a jazz DJ on the radio in San Francisco. He was then organizing to change the name to the uh, Black Student uh, Union because it was called the Negro Student Union, and there was resistance against that at, uh, by the establishment. And so when I came there, he asked me to 
would I to be uh, contribute to that by doing announcements and flyers and what have you? And it was a challenge, but we're, over, but we're able to overcome those obstacles and change the name at the same time. Uh, during that period, uh, uh, I had I was also involved with the Black Arts Movement. I had connected with Amiri Baraka when he was coming back and forth, you know, to San Francisco State, and going out there quite a bit, and and then doing the simple props for his backdrops for his plays. Also had been at Marvin X at, at one point had then announced them for him, you know, through the fact that I had th- those skills. And I was contributing to doing announcements for those uh, theaters, front, you know, storefront theaters uh, projects that they were working on, and the whole bit. So you know, and, and, and so all through that, and then here, you know, having people from SNCC and stuff coming out, talking about Black Power. It was during that era, that whole that whole period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, it just I'm so still... happens that I remembered. Uh, the Sun Reporter, even before I worked, I used to see the cartoons in their paper. And they would intrigue me, uh, but I, you know, I was curious about them, but I didn't know anything about it then. And I remembered uh, when Brother Malcolm came to town, and he gave this talk on the streets on Fillmore around Post around that time. And they went down to, they say it was going coming down to the Sun Reporter office. And I remember going down there with him and seeing Brother Malcolm when he came in to talk with Dr. Goodlett, you know, during that period in time. And so all all that, you know, after a while, you begin to be formulate in a conscious way, you know. And, it's, you know, self-kind, you always have a deeper knowing within yourself in relation about the bigotry and stuff, and then you would see it on TV. You would see on TV... You know, the, the talk, and the talk about the the the, the, the rebellions and the, the, what was happening, the marches and protests, and the lynch, all that lynchings, all those things taken in the south. And then you turn on the national news from time to time during the early fifties, I mean the early sixties, and you would see the same thing happening in South Africa from time where they was the tanks would be in the community, the water hole, and the dogs would be being sicked on the, on 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 the resistance or what have you. So all those things. You know, play a um, you know into into the subconsciousness of of, of myself. You know, and and as I evolved, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Emma Till, I remember that looking at Jet magazine. You know, that was the primary magazine at the, publication at the time. Right, Jet, yeah, and so Ebony. Family, you should look at that. Yeah, and Ebony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the question, in some sense, is that which I'm still probing a bit, and I'll, I'll get off of it in a second, is that a lot of people saw those images, but for some reason it remained with or stuck with Emory Douglas to the point that it seems like you kept looking or kept finding ways to expose yourself because some way you're out of San Francisco State, some way you're with the Black Arts Movement, and then eventually you find yourself connected with some of the founders of the Black Panther Party. Right, right. But now, let me clear. I, I was at San, I was at City College of San Francisco, but when uh, what happened, there was all the found out that all the cultural activity was going on at San Francisco State. So that's when I started going out there uh, because it was only a fifteen twenty minute ride from City College. 
So you, there have been articles that said that Emory Douglas went to San Francisco State, and I had to correct and say, no, I went to City College. I was just out there so much that everybody thought I went to San Francisco State. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then, you know, there was Hank Jones, the brother who was this SF8. Well, I knew him before the, at the Black Panther Party. When, 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 during the time when the black power conscious movement, when everybody was trying to figure out what to do, and they they took me in as a part of their group, you know, during that time. And so I, that also was uh, inspiring, you know, and played a part in my 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 uh, my going forward and my consciousness and awareness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Emory, when when do you make contact with the people who eventually will be or who already are uh, what we were referred to as the Black Panther Party for Self Defense? Yeah, well, during the, when I was at City College, and as I mentioned, Hank, Hank Jones knew of my art and stuff I had been doing in the Black Arts Movement during that time. You, you know, and so they were planning uh, with the uh, group in San Francisco to bring Sister Betty Shabazz to the Bay Area. And that's how I got involved with that, because he came to me and said that uh, he, they knew, he had suggested me I do the art to, the, to them and they and I went to the meeting and I agreed to do it. Then they said there were some brothers who were coming over from Oakland to the next meeting, and they would let them know if they were, would would do the security for that event. And and so it came over when they came over. That was Huey Newton, uh, Bobby, and little Bobby Hutton, and a couple of forty young brothers. And after that meeting, I knew that's what I wanted to be a part of. So I asked them how I could join. And Hugh and Bobby, they had business card. They gave me a business card then with the name they had on it. I didn't have a I didn't have a uh, card in, so I used to make the range to catch the bus, go by Hugh's house, uh, hang out. He showed me around the neighborhood with people he know. Then we'll go by uh, I go by Bobby's house, and that was my first transition. Begin to transition into the Black Panther Party. That was around late January of uh, 1967 about three and a half months after that started. Now, you go fast forward, during that time, up until April, I was just hanging out, going on, the, observing on the patrols and things, because they had already been doing the training or what have you. But so at the same time, they were able to connect with Elgis Cleaver through the, uh, the, the meeting to bring Sister Betty Shabazz to the Bay Area, which they were doing the security for. And... How they uh, how they connect with that because they had been looking for elders but didn't know how to get in touch with him, and it just so happens that uh, the brothers and sisters who were trying to put the, the program to bring Sister Betty Shabazz here knew wasn't getting any response, but they knew of a brother who had been in prison with with brother uh, who was an admirer and a follower of Malcolm in San in prison. And so that was Elgis Cleaver. So they said, and he had just gotten out. He was staying at his lawyer's house. And so they said they were going. They wanted to go up there to see if he would write the letter on their behalf. And I went up there with him, and he agreed to write the letter. And that's when uh, she came. You see, so that's the sidebar to that. Also, this all this is exciting. You see it all this happening. You know, yeah, that plays into. What, what you're about, but going fast. Well, I got involved with the paper because they, when I, when um, I had been hanging out with them, and 
organizing with them and doing all this stuff for, 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 for from that, say, from January all the way up until when, April when they had been talking about the paper. And they had been trying to get elders to be involved with the paper. And what happened, there was the uh, Black House, where all the cultural events used to go on in San Francisco during the Black Conscious Movement area and what have you, when Sonia Sanchez, Ed Bullins, the playwrights, Stokely, all of them used to come through there. Elder stayed upstairs in the Victorian, and the culture stuff was going on downstairs. And little Bobby would be with them and Hugh and them because, you know, I'd been hanging out with them. I'd see them when they come through, cut it up, talk with them. They would go straight on upstairs to talk with elders because they had made that connection, you see. Because in matter, and another sidebar is when, when, they, when, they, when Sister Betty Shabazz did come, can you imagine the Hugh and them going through the airport and going up on the plane to escort off the plane? And the first place she wanted to go, she wanted to go to – uh, to uh, North Beach, to Rampart Magazine, where Elchis was working at, to meet him. So that's what it, that's the that's how they made the connection with Elchis, in relationship to one pick his mind in relationship about being involved with the newspaper because they knew of him as a writer. So going back to the Black House, he lived upstairs, and they used to come over there when the culture business was going on. They go upstairs, connect, connect with Elchis. And was I guess talking about him picking his brain and and what have you, and I recall going over there one evening after they had connected with him, he had came over and talked with him and what have you. He had even set up the picture with people he knew in the news business, the picture where you have Huey and Bobby standing with the shoulder holster and the rifle in front of the pit, the window which says Black Panther on it, which was then their office. Something like the office where they did the technical training and what have you, on 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 where the bakery where the bakery was or is, on uh, MLK, that was the the uh, Elders was the one who set that up. And so when you see that photograph, they, that's what it was uh, doing an interview, one of the more first major interviews that they did there with the uh, I think it might have been the Call Bulletin or the San Francisco Examiner, one of them, whatever it was called then, yeah. And so that's that was the that was how the beginning the connection, but when I came over there one day to the black house, and they were sitting downstairs, wasn't nothing going on, and they were talking with elders, and I came in and I seen Bobby working on that. Uh, this was April of uh, 1967. I seen Bobby working on that first issue. And I said, I still I was going to City College. Had stopped going to City College. I dropped out. And went back, and I said, I can help you. I still got some of the graphic materials that I used at, at in school, and I, it took me about. Took, uh, he said, okay, and so I went to get them. I lived on the visitor Earl and Haight at that time, so it took me about uh, twenty minutes to get there, and 20, twenty minutes, forty minutes overall. So when I got back, he said, well, you know, I'm, we finished with this one. It was the one about Denzel Dial, the young brother Mitch Richmond who had been murdered. And so what they said, well, we're finished with this one, but you seem to be committed. You've been coming around, and we, we, uh, we're going to start the paper. And we want you to be, you'll be the revolutionary artist. That because what I'm a title came. You see, you'll be, eventually you become the minister of culture. It was like that? And the paper would be, huh? It was like that. We, we, you, you'll be the revolutionary artist. Yeah, they had, yeah, during the conversation. Yeah, they had the whole vision. They had a vision already, pre-vision, yeah. 
And so they said we'll be able to tell our story uh, from our perspective. It'll be, the paper will be like a double-edged sword. It can praise you on the one hand and criticize you on the other. And and that's what's the beginning. He said we, we want to have, we say we're going to try to have uh, because um, they understood the, the psychological makeup of the community in a basic way, in a real way, because they said you have going to have try to have a lot of pictures and photographs in the uh, in the paper for those who weren't going to read the long drawn out articles, but they would get the gist of the story by seeing the photographs or the headlines. And for the scenes trying to have the text big enough for the seniors and elders to be able to read it. Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They had that. So they had this kind of a mindset and thought and vision uh, in relationship to the paper itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk and a so bit. That's how I, talk a bit, Emory, about the the process of the paper, meaning that mm-hmm. meaning that you you started after that first one, but that whole process there of getting the news stories working with other uh, designers, people doing graphic art, people, all of those pieces, and then printing and, and distributing. Because it, 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 the people who saw the paper saw the finished product. But behind the scenes, share some of that with us. Yeah, well, in the beginning, that was, uh, you know, it was uh, like a, you and them would call it a guerrilla operation, like the Vietnamese, we could pick it up. And take it anywhere with us, like they did what they did in the field. They talk about the mimeograph machine when they were sending out the stuff about the uh, to the soldiers, particularly telling them that you weren't our enemy and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they said our operation was similar to that. You know, it was worked from it worked from the shallower to the deeper to the more insightful and the whole bit. It had he had to evolve, you know, over a period of time. And the first and initial thing we was we had started working out of Elders Cleveland Studio apartment. And, you know, just myself. And then every now and then, we didn't even have all of the, uh, the required basic materials to work with. Uh, it was just the fact of the stuff that I had from City College that I was able to contribute and the basic knowledge that I had learned because I had developed my skills to the point at City College that they used to send me out on job assignments. The teachers used to observe your work to see how you were, what you did best. And then they have, they, they just in the, in the job in the department there, they set it up where they had people who they knew in, in the professional that wanted, were employing people for first in the, in, in the, in the art field of, in, in some degree, in some aspects. And so you, if they thought that you were qualified, they would send you, know, let you know, ask you, would you want to do that, do, do the job? And the first one I did was technical illustrations with for some chromosomes at the school that a teacher wanted. Mm-hmm. Then I, they uh, developed to the point where I, my skills were down there where Macy's is in San Francisco was a store called Dorfman's used to be down there, which is part of where Macy's is, right across from that park on Gary Street. And they needed somebody to do their their uh, their windows, help their window design signs, their it's the board, not board, their all that work on their cutting and pasting for their ads that they would put in the newspaper every every two or three days per week in the daily paper. And so I I I, I worked there. Then they seen had I worked at uh, another place. The silk screening, 
And I didn't like that because I, I didn't never like the thing. That's why we got turned off with silk screen. I didn't want to deal with those, those chemicals. Uh, and though, and then I, you know, they were gonna send. They sent me down to Silicon. It wasn't called Silicon Valley, man. But just sent me down there to do uh, this. This, uh, this Latino brothers and them had a hit that they knew had a place where they were doing technical industrial kind of design and stuff. And they sent me down there to see if I could get the job. And I went down there. I had to do some technical illustrations and stuff doing that with, while I was there. And they, I thought they told me that they would contact me to let me know when to come back. But the teacher, uh, teacher later on asked me, why didn't I, why didn't I go back? I said, well, I thought they was going to contact me. He said, well, they told me. <laughs> they told me that you were supposed to come back. So now if I did that, I, I might have been off somewhere else today. You know what I'm saying? But I'm thankful that I didn't get the job. And so, you know, all those things I said played into my development in relationship to my ability to be able to do the production of the paper. You know, even have those ability to begin to do that without taking up commercial art, which involves pre-pressed production, you know, critiquing your work and evaluating against what's being done, understanding how publications were put to, put together, all those things from scratch and being able to stand up and explain that as we did as students and those kinds of things. Because the teachers there at City College were always critiquing your work against what was considered one of the most premier uh, design schools in the country was in L.A., the L.A. Uh, uh, School of Design, what have you. And so the teachers were always pushing your work to that degree, you know. So that played a part into critiquing and evaluating mm -hmm. what I did, you mm -hmm. know. And so, but when, and being able to use the materials that I had, working in small print shops in the community, you learn and understand because they get high-end jobs with the equipment that they have. So they have to be, so they know how to cut the corners. As opposed to you going to uh, a place that got every, all the high-end equipment and what have you, uh, a lot of these print shops didn't have all that. But they knew and learned over years of experience how to get the job done with what they had. Mm -hmm. So you learned, you, all that experience played into how I was able to apply it in when I came and worked in, on the paper at the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Walter Turner. We'll be right back after this message from KPFA. KPFA Radio is a community-powered, listener-supported radio station based in Berkeley, California. We are able to bring you this content through donations and support from our listeners. Please consider supporting KPFA through a donation by visiting www.kpfa.org donate. And now let's get back to the program. Welcome back to Africa Today. We're speaking with uh, Emory Douglas. Uh, Emory Douglas is, he has a book out now, which is the Revolutionary of Emory Douglas on uh, Rizzoli Press. Uh, he is a former veteran revolutionary artist, Minister of Culture for the Black Panther Party. Uh, he has been involved with the Black People's Mobile, with the Black Panther newspaper from the second issue all the way up until the uh, 1980s. He was one of the uh, one of those members of the Black Panther Party who went to uh, Sacramento. And, and that's why I wanted to ask you, Emory, what, what effect did going to Sacramento 
and the press and media attention and what you had to go through once you were up in Sacramento, what what impact did that have on Emory Douglas? Well, I, I don't because of the, uh, the the being prepared for that by being around and transitioning into the Black Panther Party up until that point. You see, so that was uh, you know it, it was something that you were prepared for. But how it came about, it just so happened that I had went by, again, the Black House, because I was living in San Francisco before I moved over to Oakland for about, two, about 30, 20 or 30 years. Uh, and I went there that day before, and then and I was had to cut it up with Eldridge Cleaver, and I was fixing to leave. And he told me, he said, we're going to Sacramento tomorrow morning. Do you want to go? And I said, yeah. They say, well, you got to be here around six or something because we got to meet over in Oakland. And I said, okay. When I got to Oakland at that morning, it was a whole, it was explained why we were going. So it wasn't like it was just went there. It was a meeting to discuss with everybody who went. See, and everybody people think it was just the Panthers. There was the Dow family, Denzel Dow, the brothers and sisters of those, the brother who was murdered in North Richmond, his family, sisters and brothers, some of them went. Uh, Artie Seal was there. Bobby's wife at that time. You had uh, Mark Comfort, who was the brother who was organized. He'd been in Lyons County, down south, who organized and who also felt uh, knew about the Lyons County Panthers or what have you. He was his, his he had a collective of brothers. Who, and sister who went from west, north, east Oakland, he was the same one who felt that the Panthers could help the Dow family. So he was the one who got the, about the Panthers in touch with the Dow family in North, in, in North because he felt that he and Bobby them could move more for him than what he was able to do at that time. So you had, it was a whole collective. It wasn't just Panthers. And it was explained why and we call it what we call it was a colossal event, meaning that there was, when you go there, there might be all kinds of press and stuff. People might get arrested and what have you, all those things. But the party still being in an infant phase, the stage, even five or six months into it, it was said that Bobby would stay. Hugh, Bobby would lead the delegation and do the talking. No one else was to do the talking. He was the focal point. Huey was standing behind because he figured it might be a possibility for arrest. If there was arrest, it needed somebody who understood and knew the historical context, knew the context of the party about the 10-point platform program to deal with the media. So that's why they did both, both did not go. It was explained it wasn't going there for no gunplay. The guns would be put into the trunks of the cars. And when we got to Sacramento, then they would be taken out. And that's what took place. And it was going there to read executive mandate number one, which in essence was talking about the uh, how the they were building these concentration camps, just like they did for the Japanese to to intern black folks in these uh, in these in these in these in these concentration camps, which we call it the prison industrial complex. Today, that was executive mandate number one. When we got to the state capitol. They took the guns out, went on the ground. It just so happens that Ronald Reagan was then the governor of the state of California, was holding 
a press conference about 10 feet away when we got up to the close to the front of the Capitol. All the press, he was talking to some young parochial school kids. All the press came over to where we were. They seen us, and they knew what was going on. And Bobby explained why we were there, going to observe this legislation uh, the, that they got this right-wing assemblyman to pass because they couldn't deal with the patrols that had been going on in the community. The police couldn't, and therefore they wanted to change the local gun ordinance. And that's what we were going there to observe and to read that executive mandate number one. And so when the press came over, Bobby explained it. He read that executive mandate number one, then went into the cap, went into the cap, opened the door. They opened the door. It was like we kicked the doors in. We walked up, went in. The press didn't know where the, the, uh, the no one knew where the, the chambers were, where they were dealing, were dealing with the law. And so finally found that was on the second floor. So the press is the one that's leading everybody upstairs to the chambers. So when you get to the chambers <clears throat> and open the door, the first ones to go in is the press. Finally behind it is Panthers. But the first thing they say is get the guns out. Get no, excuse me. The first thing they say is get the get the cameras out of here. Get the news out of here. And at the same time, Panthers walking in, they say get the guns out. So everybody turns and walks out. And we go back downstairs on the on the top of the ground for about 10, 15 minutes, then discussing, you know, some people had to leave and go to different places and what have you. And so we finally left and went to the fill station, I think about two or three, four blocks from the Capitol. And it just so happens while we were there, we were putting the guns and stuff into the trunks and stuff. You had this policeman come out on his motorcycle, and he seen all these black men with these guns. He got on his, his thing, whoop, 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 whoop. And next thing you know, you had, they came down from everywhere, swarmed on us at the filling station. I guess this was supposed to be the payback. But they took the guns, jammed them up, make them, to make them in violation of the local gun ordinance for the city and what have you. They, they did all that. And, uh, you know, we we're not supposed to speak, so the reason why I think you've seen on there where I was, yeah, we had this, this pamphlet that we passed out and to everybody. And, and the press kept asking and coming up to me asking, you know, about it. And I said, you read it. Can't you read it? You know, so that's the essence of what I said, you know. And so they arrested us. So that began, then that became a colossal event, mm-hmm. you know, then, because you had, after that, because you have to understand, this is during the time when all the bridge and riots had been taking place over over the years, during the 60s. And people were, were frustrated behind the situation, just like they were today, have been today. And so you had people all over the country talking about they wanted to be Panthers or they were Panthers and what have you. So that began to begin to be evolve, the, the, the realize what had to be done. And so we were going, had been going back and forth to Sacramento during that time. We were locked up. I was locked up. I stayed, I think I stayed a lot less than anybody. I think I stayed locked up about oh, myself and a few others. I think about three weeks to I think Bobby still stayed a little more and what happened. Little Bobby Hutton stayed up the most because he was a youngster. And when you go juvenile, you do more time for the same thing as you did if you did as an adult. It was a misdemeanor or something like that. But what happened, when we, we all got bailed out. We all got bailed out. And so what happened was that uh, we're going back and forth. They don't know all who had guns. 
They just know they seen Bobby. They I think they said a few others had guns. And so we're going back and forth, back and forth to Sacramento. And then they wanted to make a deal because they didn't, they couldn't identify everybody or who, you know. So they wanted to make a deal where there would be non-supervised probation. It's to plead guilty to the misdemeanor. Uh, malicious mischief was supposed to be called. And then you go free. You walk out to court and you go free. You don't have to report to a probation office. All this was for them to say face. And we agreed to that, Bobby said, because the fact that we have to get out here and start organizing with all these people coming, don't know who it is and what it's about, and have to get all this, start to start moving forward to build a party is what happens from that phase, from that phase. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. You know, and so, and so, Mm-hmm. Okay. No, let me let me let me because I I know I'm looking at our time here, and actually we probably should be talking about it for a couple of hours. But there's one one or two other pieces I wanted to to get in, and that goes back in some senses goes back to the party paper because when we talked the other day, you talked about the readership of the party paper, which at times was the most read one of the most read newspapers in the country, certainly the most read black newspaper. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was one of the papers that covered international affairs. That paper, Muhammad Speaks, also covered international affairs. But but why and how did the party decide that the stories about Angola, Vietnam, China, Lumumba, um, Portuguese Angola, South Africa, should be a regular part of the paper because you were putting in there pictures of people who some people knew, but many people didn't know who Mao Zedong was or who Nguyen Bon Giap was. So I'm interested in that thinking there with the international piece. Mm-hmm. Well, we always had an international favorite. One was called one. We here in the used to sell the Red Book. And so that was became a, uh, one of our, our, our reading materials, required reading during that time as well. But also Hugh and them were very versed in, in, in the uh, international politics, and particularly the, in the, you know, dealing with the struggles and resistance movements that were going on in Africa and Asia and Latin America. They, they were aware of all those things. And so uh, when the paper started, there was always, the Elgish himself was as well. Uh, and so they, they, all the time, when, and then you had those who are allies, who work with us and who we knew, were, were sending us materials and stuff, and then Hewitt and them, and they would see what, what, what needed to be going in. And they would make, those decisions were made that way in the early, in the early phase. You have to understand, the early phase was totally evolved to what it became. You see, but in that early phase, it was Bobby Huey and all of them. And when they were going out organizing, they'd come over, read, look at the paper, talk about what might need to be come in, and those kinds of things. You see, all that played a part into the uh, the uh, looking at the articles on Africa, what we had about dealing with the struggles in the third world, and what was very relevant to do, put, important to put in at that time, and what have you. Yeah. And then I offer that. I got the spirit of how to do the masquet, get the feel of what the international section was going to be about, you know. Yeah. So that's how I began to put those photographs of the different icons, uh, 
revolutionary leaders and who people who were icons to people around the world at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when you decided, I mean, you generally, you, you, well, you were in charge of the, the layout, but you also chose at times to put graphic images that you developed inside the paper, on the front page of the paper, on the back page of the paper. But there were other artists that worked with you also, right, Emery? Oh, absolutely. The other artists did about uh, 85% work, even uh, even though I did a, maybe did a, a major, major volume, but they did a major volume too over, over a period of time because I worked with different artists at various times. The first one was Sister Tarika Lewis, Matalaba we call her then. You know, and yeah, she was the first artist I worked with. And then there was another brother in Sacramento, Mark Teamer, who also during that time initially. And over over a period of time, other comrades who had our Gail, uh, Sally Dixon, uh, who came in. All There were many, Malik, M- Malik Edwards. There were many, Ralph Moore and, uh, and others who, and people who worked on the production aspect of the paper. Many comrades who came in who worked up cut and paste, Put the paper together at at very at many at times, you know. Worked in the uh, you know that and that kind of spec and that aspect of the paper, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how much do we need to understand Emory in those years from '68 up until the the '70s, coming through '69 with Fred Hampton all the way up to Attica in 19 1971 and and, and uh, George Jackson, uh, be, because I I, I know that. You and many others talk about the, the plethora of survival uh, program, but but clearly, Clo and Pelpro played a role. And y- your thoughts on how major that role was, not only in undermining the party, but undermining the broader movement. Well, I'll ask, I'll, uh, yeah, actually, oh yes, because they've seen the impact that the it was having, the paper and was having. Not on the paper, the Black Panther Party as, as a whole, overall. You know, it was it was shifting the mindsets in the country how people demand, were beginning to demand free breakfast programs after we being implemented and pointing out the contradictions of what the government should have been doing and wasn't doing for the people. Mm-hmm. The, the alternative health clinics, all those things, where you had actual doctors and stuff coming in, and uh, like Doctor Small and others who came in and, and who. Gave their, their their services to the community, you know, for those for the calls, you know, and showing they're pointing out the sickle cell anemia, doing that over 100,000 free sickle cell anemia tests all across the country, letting people. You had a young brother who was in the party from Texas who came and worked in the Bay Area, had been ill all his life, didn't know why, and he took the sickle cell anemia test, and he found out he had sickle cell was the reason why, you see. So you, those kinds of things and pointing out that these are what the government should be doing and was not doing made us public enemy number one. That's, that's the reality of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people lose their lives in this process. Uh, yes. I mean, like in any struggles in any kind of part, country in the world, where you have resistance and you have self-determination to transform and change things, there are going to be those. There's going to be those. There's going to be times when you're going to have. You're going to have those who are going to fall by the wayside. Yes. What, what what has the 
because uh, looking at some of your 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 graphics and and looking at the the work that you've done over the last eight to ten years about health, about uh, Haiti, about uh, Palestine, about uh, events in Mexico, the book that you did with the uh, the Zapatistas, and, and looking at your body of work from somebody who stepped into the movement. Uh, in the late 1960s and still in the movement, still doing work, still engaged. What has what all this meant to uh, Emory Douglas? What has this done for, uh, how do you see this as, as creating that Emory Douglas that we know and that uh, uh, we see your work like in your new book? Well, I, I think it's more about how people respond to things. This is to be inspired by, to be inspired with. And so I think people can see within see within the context of the work themselves and how they feel and how they would do things. So it's not it's not a me art in the sense that we are in the, in that context. Maybe got I was you. able to capture that. Hmm? I got I, I got you, but I'm I'm asking you, Emory, when when Emory looks at himself in the context of the we. How do how do you how do you how do you read how do you read how it's changed your consciousness your view of the global world your view of what has to oh, be done? Oh yeah, well we always thought that everything was in a, always in a constant state of change and transformation. We always talked about that, but you got to understand it in a real context, and you have to be observant of how the people are responding, how they're feeling as as we evolve. And what, and what issues that they're concerned with. And, of course, as an artist, you can touch on, you can have a list of things, but you can't do them all. You just do what you think is relevant. And so that's what I try to, to work with, you know, in the context of what I do. And so, you know, it's, it's as, you know, if the people, you know, I was, we were talking about health in the party. You had people in there who were, moved, who were, who were vegetarian, a few, had for who wasn't vegetarian, you know. You also talked about quality, eating better, food and stuff. At, at that time, and I remember at, uh, about the, before the demise and a lot of part of the party. I remember getting them comrades in my country gave me a cookbook that was done by this hippie commune that dealt nothing but soybean, but everything was made out of soybean pies, cakes. So that was inspiring, you know, uh, wanting, talking about change and wanting to change for health, you, you know, for for your health, you know. So that's, you, you investigate, you, because of the foundation is what we develop in ourselves and our political education, uh, investigating things and all those things. That applied to myself in the context of wanting to uh, be more healthier and in tune with what's going on in the real world, you know. And how, so, therefore, you, you, you reach out and you try to at least have a basic uh, insight into what, what the realities are that exist and how you can uh, deal, how you can maybe contribute in, in, a, in, a, in a way to bring uh, enlightenment to the issue. It may even be a bit of provocative way, but not a distorted interpretation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. I think I know what you're yeah. talking about there. Are you going to put out the, um, I know last time I spoke with you, you were working it, I think re kind of formatting it, the uh, Political Artist Manifesto? 
Oh uh, yes, that's that's the one that's on on at the at the Marin is uh, on the wall. It's out there. Uh, I've I've shared it with many 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 people over. Uh, matter of fact, young people artists have been involved with it and you know and use it and they read it and interpret it how they choose to interpret it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know when I saw it over at Marin, and currently uh, uh, Professor Emery Douglas has a. Uh, installation over at the uh, College of Marin. It's there through uh, Black Panther Month, October, uh, and a number of his uh, pieces. And I was reading it, uh, I was reading number eight uh, when I saw it the other day, and it which says, try not to not create, try not to create political art dealing with social concerns just because it's a cool thing to do. Um uh, which kind of hits it on the button, but you have 12 rules there or 12 guidelines of what you call the political artist uh, manifesto. Mm -hmm. And the, mm -hmm. the book that you have out now, Emory, give us the title of the book. Well, this is called Black Panther, the Revolutionary Art of Emory Douglas. And this is the uh, compilation of um, about 200 images of, uh, of graphics. That I, this has been out. This is the third edition that they published of it. And it's you know it has uh, essays in it by Greg Morizumi, who was a part of the Red Guard Iwakun. You got uh, Colette Gator, you got Bobby Seale, Kathleen Cleaver, and many others. Who and Momia gives a, a, a little statement to it on the on the sleeve. You got Cornell West who made a statement on the back. Uh, so it's, it has a lot. It, it was it was put out about four or five years ago. You know, beautiful book, and beautiful book, Emory, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the piece on Revolution in Our Lifetime, uh, the cover mm -hmm. is on the front, the uh, Black Panther, the Revolutionary Art of Emory Douglas, which is available. It's available on Rizzoli Press. Also, you have the book, which is on, I think it was called Common, uh, what was it? Was it Common Ground? or? Oh, yeah, that was the one on the Zapatistas. That was Caleb Duarte who invited me to Idello Art Space that they had in 2012. And from there on, I went back to Chiapas about, about four or five different occasions to, and because he knew uh, uh, some Zapatistas. And we used to, and you had to get permission to go into their territory during that time. And uh, so he would work it out for us as artists, myself, many other artists as well from around the world. We'd go there to uh, do some collective painting uh, in Zapatista territory because they're, they're, they're very poor people, but they would share with you whatever they had, you know, but you had to bring your own, own paints. You had to bring your your own sleeping equipment, all that. You've been ruling. You you know you'd be out there dealing, sleeping in shacks and and on the ground and and using outhouses. You ain't using you ain't using uh, the toilets that you flush. Every now and then you might get them when you were out there in the areas, but most of the time you you dealing with the outhouses, what have you. Yeah. So okay. we had to bring we had to bring everything with us. And I do when I do my presentations, I do show a little bit of that. And as well as some of the other travels I've done uh, when I do the presentations uh, that I do. Okay, well, we're, I know we're looking forward, people are looking forward to seeing you. You'll be over at the College of Marin on October uh, 26th. Uh, you'll be there along with Tarika Lewis, uh, with Maris Gabriel, and also with uh, Melanie Cervantes. Uh, I'm sure that the people will get a chance to see your imagery. People also can take a look, as we talked about, 
Black Panther, The Revolutionary Art of Emory Douglas, uh, which is available. You can order it and go to the local uh, bookstores that you support, the Marcus Bookstores. Uh, you also can get uh, Zapantera Negra, uh, which is this encounter, uh, a chronicling of this encounter between the Black Panthers and between the uh, Zapatistas. And uh, Professor Douglas, we could be talking to you for a long time. Uh, we wanted to make sure that people knew about your recent work, um, your upcoming presentations, uh, and we can't we can't uh, uh, thank you enough, uh, Emory. You're a treasure, so we appreciate you and thank you for making the time. Uh, thank you, Brother Walton. Can I just say one thing? Surely, go ahead. Right the manifesto is that uh, when you said mentioned that uh, don't do uh, political office because it's a fun thing to do. You can have fun doing it. But don't do it because it's just a point. <laughs> I, I appreciate that clarification. Emory will be in touch. Take good care, my brother. Okay, my brother. All okay. right. The Revolutionary Art of Emory Douglas, October 26th at College of Marin Theater in Kentville, California, from 5 to 8 p.m. An evening with Emory Douglas, veteran revolutionary artist and former minister of culture of the Black Panther Party. Emory Douglas will present on black liberation and global solidarity, along with artist Melanie Cervantes, violinist Tarika Lewis, and poet Maris Gabriel. His art will be in the College of Marin Art Gallery throughout the month of October. For seating information, go to emorydouglas.eventbrite.com. This is Walter Turner, your regular host for Africa Today. Thanks for listening. If you want more episodes of Africa Today, you can go to the archive page of KPFA, www.kpfa.org. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to find more KPFA radio content, log on to www.kpfa.org. Also, follow us on social media by visiting Facebook at KPFA 94.1 and Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at KPFA Radio. 
Plus, check out our KPFA TV video content on YouTube and twitch.tv at KPFA Radio. Subscribe to this podcast and stay updated to when we release episodes of shows representing the best of KPFA Radio.